0: It made me realise what I was missing out on. Um, it made me realise that there's more to life than, than work and that having me around is actually really important to my family, to my, my wife and my kids. And they actually quite like me being there. So
1: it was a revelation, I guess. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Fatigue, it's something that's become front and center for so many in the industry this year. After working entire careers, putting every ounce of energy into their vocation, many in the hospitality sector have been given the chance to rest and take stock of the toll of years of working long hours on their feet. With a moment to breathe, what impact will that have on those carving out careers in the industry? Ian Todd is the executive chef of Sapphire Freycinet. Ian, how are you going?
0: I'm going well, Huck. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thanks for joining us. You've been involved in many venues in Tasmania and been known for working too many hours as well. What, what, what sort of impact did the lockdown have on, on you when it first happened?
0: And when it first happened, I... Um It was pretty scary, really. Um, Obviously, I think everyone was in the same boat. No one really knew what was going to happen, whether, you know, whether we'd be all getting sick and dying and um, whether we'd have jobs to go back to, whether there'd be dole payments for us or how we were going to put food on the table at home. So kind of once that all resolved itself, um, my company was pretty good with... um, Communication and all that. So that was that was pretty short lived, really. But once once we actually got locked down and they closed the business, uh, kind of indefinitely, I actually had a break for the first time in many many years. More than just a few days, um, I got to be there for my son's first birthday. Um, I got to sleep more than a few hours a night. I got to ride my bike and reconnect with my family, I guess, and um, something that I'd never really done before. Um, I got I got pneumonia almost straight away from my body, I guess, um, not being used to not just running on empty the whole time. So it was um, a, a bit of a double-edged sword, but I think for the most part it was really good for me.
1: Well, let's go back a bit. You mentioned that you got pneumonia after – working such long hours for many many years what what sort of toll has working in the industry taken on you and how how did it feel in that time when you sort of your body was sort of in shock
0: um I I don't really remember how my body felt having that break It, it kind of you know I felt sore and I felt like I couldn't I couldn't rest the first day I was in lockdown I was up at five o'clock in the morning and reorganized the pantry at home and cleaned the oven and it really took a few days to, to kind of wind down uh, and within probably a week I, I ended up in hospital with pneumonia um, which is the third time I've had it from, usually it's when I'm working so hard that I, I can't rest but this time it was because I did rest so um, that was a bit of a, a bit of a weird one as well. but. Um, yeah, I I, I, um, I think the industry's had a, a real toll on me. I I, I guess I'm, I've been doing it for 20-odd years. I'm of the old school where work is, you know, it's the centre of my life. Um, I've got kids and a wife and all that now and trying really trying to balance my, my life um, around that. And I think the, the COVID thing really made me realise what I was missing out on, but um it's it's cost me relationships it's cost me my health my mental health um it's been it's been a pretty wild ride really
1: you spent some time in hospital during this pandemic with pneumonia. what was it like the the hospital experience given the pandemic and covid was it was it a very different hospital experience for you
0: um it was a Bit frightening because obviously being prone to a respiratory um, issue kind of made me realise that I might be a bit more prone to um, the, the COVID virus than other people my age might be. Um, but I, I was pretty, you know, really well looked after actually. Um, everyone was taking the best possible precautions, and and I felt pretty safe in the end. It wasn't wasn't much of an issue at all.
1: You're one of the most influential chefs in Tasmania and at the moment you're at Sapphire and Freycinet. Uh, what's, what's things like now at the moment in Tasmania? Does it feel relatively back to normal?
0: It does. We, we actually closed down for about eight weeks completely um, and then we, we reopened for just the Friday, Saturday night for um, Tasmanian guests only. Um, we actually ended up being full almost every week with just our Tasmanian guests, um, with a special Tassie-only rate. So people who had never got to come here um, got to come and stay. This is it's pretty well out of reach for the average person—two uh, and a half thousand dollars a night. Um, so most most people is kind of on the bucket list, but. They, they don't really realistically get to come. So people did get to come and experience Sapphire and, and that was really nice and um, to show it off to the Tasmanian um, people who've really supported us over the years. Um, but as of Thursday this week, we're, we're back to full swing, seven days, seven nights. Um, we're getting people from obviously not internationals, um, but from New South Wales and Victoria, which make up about ninety seven percent of our Australian market, um, and we're full. We've almost fully booked until Easter now. So, we've kind of gone from zero to one hundred in a couple of days, and um, I've realised that I need to make a pretty significant change to the way that we do things. Well, I do things because I'm back to working. Um, undesirable hours for the next few weeks. Just waiting on uh, waiting on some new staff to arrive. We're, we're a bit busier what we thought we would be a bit sooner than what we thought we would be. So, I mean, it's a good problem to have. But, um, again, it's, it's um, harking back to that kind of COVID shutdown when I realised what I was missing out on at home. Um, it's all come kind of flooding back a bit the last couple of days.
1: What's some of the things that you... Feel that you could put in place to achieve that kind of work-life balance that is missing for so many in the industry.
0: That is a very good question. Um, I think learning to trust people um, and trust my staff is um, kind of the main one, I guess. I've got I've got a, a team here that I've had for a few years now. Um, incredible chefs very passionate from all over the world and um, enjoy living in a remote location and enjoy working at the level that we do. Um, But I have pretty significant issues in just letting people do their jobs and not um, trying to get involved in absolutely every part of every service of every day, seven days, 24-7. So I think uh, I need to work on that myself. Um, and and learning people's strengths and where I need to be putting them, what sections and what hours they want to be working and and really organise the team properly. So that's going to be a big focus for me um, sort of post-Christmas to to get the business really um, working for me in the the kitchen, I guess.
1: You mentioned that you're a bit of an old-school chef in many ways. Um, with rolling your sleeves up and just getting into it and making work your whole life how different as chef is kitchens from 20 years ago
0: I think very different and in a really good way like I was I was bullied I was punched and kicked and it was a pretty horrible environment um, when I first started um, when nowadays you don't you just don't hear about that so much Um we pay everyone for all their hours. Um, we treat people with respect and listen to them. Um, I think it's, it's a vastly different industry to what it, what it was a few years ago. Um, but I, I just don't think I can, I can't seem to snap myself out of that just working from morning till night. It's, it's got to be a pretty significant change for me mentally. I think there's the, the, the key to it.
1: Where did it all start for you? Can you take us back to those early days, 20 years or so ago, when you started a career in hospitality? What, what led you to that?
0: Um, I've always worked in food. My first ever job was working at an oyster farm, um, just being a, a farmhand. Um, that was in the 90s. and Then I worked in a, a big commercial butchery. Um, go in there after school and scrub down the bandsaw and use the pressure washer on the floors and to basically clean up after a day in in the butchery. Um, then I finished school and I was going to go to university and study architecture, um, but ended up getting a job washing dishes uh, in a new business, a new restaurant that had opened. Um, and... For too long, I was working preparing food, and then moved to Melbourne to do my apprenticeship, and here we are, twenty-something years later, still doing it. It felt I think like most people, just kind of fell into it, and and it got under my skin, and now I can't get rid of it.
1: Well, you you worked at uh, places like uh, Phoenix in Melbourne and Hobart's Henry Jones and. You made a real name for yourself as a young chef and owner with Picolily. Can you t- can you tell us about those days? Um,
0: so Picolily days, I um I was twenty four, um and I was working with a guy uh, Henry Jones when we were we were pretty close and had a very similar outlook on um food and restaurants and what we thought was good and what we didn't and and decided to open a little restaurant, um which is about 35, 40 seats. Um, and we we try to do something that there really wasn't in Hobart at the time, which was kind of high-end fine dining. Um, and, yeah, and, and we did pretty well. He, um, he and his partner had a baby and um, sort of got out of it, which left me there. Um, so I did that for five years. Um, and then the opportunity to move... Um, and opened another place came up uh, in the city so um, we moved to to the city and opened a big a big spot which is about a hundred seats um, and kind of uh, it was a real roller coaster of um, styles and we, we started out just kind of doing a tapestry um kind of a small plates and share table. And that kind of evolved into doing like a feed me option. And then most people ended up doing that feed me option. So then we sort of moved into set menus. Um, and, and all this while I was making a, a real kind of pool of, um, uh, Tassie producers and growers and farmers. So when we ended, we ended up doing a, a set menu, which changed every day using only products from the Island, um, and you know that that menu would be cooked and served, and then the next day we would write it all again and and start from scratch. So it was a you know a dug my own grave there in terms of the hours I was working and um, you know battling depression and all that sort of stuff at, um, at the same time. But yeah, we, we got a bit of critical acclaim, which was which was pretty nice. So um, did that for five years. Um, And then my wife was pregnant and we'd had a terrible winter and uh, it just seemed the right time to close it. So we closed it in 2016, I think it was. And uh, and now I work for a a big company with a couple of hotels and I live in the middle of nowhere on the east coast and life's pretty good.
1: Ethos, that larger restaurant in the centre of Hobart, uh, really put a focus on uh, local producers, and it really challenged you as a chef with the um, what you were doing there with the daily changing menu. Um, what 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 drives you as a chef to do that sort of thing? Does it start with with produce?
0: In that case, it certainly did. We we would write a, um, a list of what we had in the in the pantry and in the in the fridge in the morning, uh, and write the menu. Uh, solely around what we had on the property, so um, the the meat and everything was all was all from Tassie. Um, so obviously in winter we have a, a pretty um, desperate situation with fruit and veg. There's not much, no fruit at all, I guess, and and not much in terms of interesting fruit and vegetables. So the winter, I guess, was the, the challenging time to be trying to do. As many different things with carrots and kale as possible. Uh, and then in summer, you know, there's this bounty of stuff in summer. There's all the fruit and all the veg you can imagine. So summer was pretty easy. We just kind of cut things up and put them on the plate. Um, but yeah, doing that for a few years was, yeah, it was, it was a good challenge and it taught me a lot about um, what I like to cook and the way I like things to be and and letting flavors speak for themselves and and sourcing these ingredients that you can just kind of let do their thing Um, and then I started here at Sapphire um, which is just so very different because we're um, we're a hotel um, we're ultra luxury we have people coming to stay who are the richest most powerful people in the world and, and travel like this all the time and we have people who have saved up for years to come for one night for their 50th anniversary. Um, and they they want to be blown away by the food and the richest, most powerful people on the planet want to be blown away by the food. So it was a very steep learning curve for me to, um, to start cooking what people wanted to eat and not what I wanted to cook, which I – you know, you kind of, you come from restaurants, people come into that restaurant to, to experience that particular experience. People come to Sapphire for all sorts of reasons and the food is part of that experience. So they might come for the environment. We've got the national park and everything here. They might come for the architecture. They might come because it's got a amazing reputation. Um, they might come because it's the only ultra luxury property in Tasmania um, and, and, and they're staying for breakfast lunch and dinner and snacks and activities and all that the whole time they're with us so they're not going there's nowhere else to go um in coles bay so um we we do a different tasting menu every night here as well but it's it's a very different kind of motivation for for me in in terms of what i'm putting on the plate if that makes
1: sense can you take us through what you are doing there? Do you have a, a dish or two that you could take us through to give an example of kind of um, that luxurious sort of offering that you guys are doing there? Oh, that's a good question. Um,
0: I guess we we try and champion those perceived luxury ingredients like we're using the best Wagyu beef that we can source in Tassie from um, Robins Island. Um, so we're getting this nine score um, eye fillet um, which is absolutely exceptional. Um, we're putting it with some mushrooms from a, a tiny little backyard producer in Hobart called Little Island Mushrooms. Um, we've, we're picking some herbs from down on the beach um, and from our little herb garden here on the property. Um, we're making an incredible sauce with it takes days to make, um, and putting all that together and, and telling the story, which I think is probably the key to it, is, the, is that communication as to why we've selected the ingredients, why they're on the plate, and and how special they are. Um, <clears throat> so, the, the, I guess the, the the Tasmanian experience is really key to what makes Sapphire the way what it is and how special it is. Um, people come from a long, long way away. You know, we're two and a half hours, three hours from the nearest airport. Um, so people do actually travel to get away and to, to become immersed in Tasmania. So the, the stories, I guess, are the, um, the key. But then we have, we have to have the lobster, we have to have caviar, we have to have the best fish, the best beef, the best lamb the most delicious vegetables, um, the best chocolate, all that sort of stuff to, to kind of back that up. But the dishes that strike a chord with people, I think, are the ones that have the story to go with.
1: Take me back to when you were working on the oyster farm back those, all those years ago. Did you get any sort of insight into how important grape producers were back then? Um,
0: I don't think I really did. It's, it's something that's always been kind of taken for granted in my family, I guess. Um, we had a little vegetable garden as kids and I loved potting peas and, and growing things, little potatoes and okra and that sort of thing. Um, as a kid, so it always been kind of part of, um, my, my childhood, I guess, having those things there. Um, and when, whenever there was a special occasion in the family, so a birthday or someone did well at a test or whatever, we would go out and we'd have a great meal somewhere. So that side of quality um, restaurant has always been really tied to good times, I guess, um, and success and or, or even the opposite, opposite of success, we would have a commiseration dinner. Um, so I guess having those... The, the, the focus on produce and, and getting things right and having nice things there has always been kind of a part of that. I, I, I don't think I put that together at the oyster farm though because it's pretty messy hard work um, and I was doing things like bashing the wild oysters off the rails with a hammer and it um, wasn't the most, it um, wasn't the nicest job I've, I've ever had but I guess it, it kind of it, it was food-related and I felt comfortable in that kind of environment, I suppose.
1: Have there been some key moments during your career that have um, inspired you or set you on a, a new path to become the chef you are? Probably lots.
0: I think um, the first and foremost would be that that first restaurant I wo- worked in um, back in 1999 um, was owned by... Um, uh, Robin Black and Catherine Wakefield, who, who were real kind of, uh, trailblazers in the Tasmanian restaurant industry at the time. Um, they had a a cafe called Kumquat, which was the first kind of real high quality, um, cafe in, in the city, I suppose. Um, and they, they kind of inspired me and they harnessed me and, Um, they saw something in me the the passion for food and and gave me those opportunities early on which I guess sowed the seed for me to to push the what I have in the industry and to stay in the industry for so long Um, and and they gave me responsibility when they probably shouldn't have and they they let me they just let me go with it and uh, encourage me to move to Melbourne and, and help me as best they could. So um, I, I think that is the the most pivotal point in my career is like really the first kind of hospitality gig I ever had just set me on this path to to do what I have done, I suppose.
1: At the top of the show, you sort of openly talked about the toll that being in the industry, in the industry has taken on you and also having moments of um, suffering from depression. For for those um, looking to get a start and own their own business, what sort of advice would you have to them about trying to um, look after yourself and mental health um, in such a in an industry such as hospitality?
0: Well, um, I think making it a priority is absolutely the key to that um for me i've never really made my mental health a priority it's always been very task oriented which i guess most people in the kitchen are you you've got your list of jobs to do um and you've got your service to do and and that is your your whole focus um when you when you're running a business you've got so many other pressures, um, I guess mainly the financial ones, um, to try and get your, your business to be successful. Um, and that, I guess that's another, another thing to take you away from focusing on yourself. So m- my advice to be, would be to make that, build that into your business plan got to have your mental health in the right space or you'll get burnt out you'll start resenting your business you'll be you won't you'll you'll lose your relationships you'll be a horrible boss whatever however it manifests itself but I don't think any of those are particularly good so I think build build that mental health plan into your business plan um, and you'll be off at least on the right foot with a bit of a focus on it but for me I've, it's always been kind of an afterthought and I, I have the ability to to switch it off when I'm at work but when I'm outside of work it's been a big issue for me for a lot of years and, um, you know, lots of treatment and lots of tablets and um, lots of late nights I guess.
1: You've been a major part of... Tasmanian culinary scene for the last 20 years how much have you seen it change in that time Uh, incredible amount
0: incredible amount it's a, a very very different town to to what it was 20 years ago I think um I couldn't have achieved what I have and and done what I've done in the industry had I not left the island um and and gone to Melbourne and learned from some great chefs there um, <clears throat> and travelled and, and done all that. There just wasn't the depth of, um, I guess, skill and and the dining public wasn't ready for great restaurants. The producers weren't here. Um, so th- there just wasn't – and there weren't enough great spots in, in Tassie. Um, you know like one or two at best but in the last few years I think um, people are just you know things like Instagrams just opening people's eyes to what else is out there and um, people are choosing to move to Tassie like industry people are choosing to move to Tassie instead of moving away they're they're actually coming here and they're bringing that passion and their skills and, and their networks here and it's really enlivened the industry. Um, there are more great restaurants and you can poke a stick at and, and more talented people, um, than ever. And I think people, um, people are dining out more and expecting more and, and it's pushing the industry from both ends. So, uh, it, it's a, a vastly different place in the last 20 years. I think Tasmania is, um, you're proud to tell people you're from Tasmania now whereas 20 years ago um, people would kind of look at you like where's your second head where um, I, I think Tasmania is a
1: paradise you mentioned a little earlier that having that time off with the initial lockdown you got to you got to attend your son's first birthday and spend a lot more time with your family has that experience changed you I think
0: it really has it, it made me realize what... I was missing out on um, so I, I wasn't there for my daughter's first birthday um, and, you know, that, those kind of big events leave a, leave a bit of a mark. So um, it made me realise that there's more to life than than work and that having me around is actually really important to my family, to my, my wife and my kids and they actually quite like me being there. So that was... Um, it was it was it was a revelation i guess to to actually be there and be forced to be there and have nowhere else to be um it was it was awesome and and now being back at work in that full time capacity and and back to working the hours that I was working before it's it's um it's given me a lot to think about. That's for sure.
1: Well, you mentioned you are trying to work out how to obtain that life work balance because you've realised what you're missing out on. But what what are you loving at the moment with the restaurant busy again and and sort of moving on beyond COVID? What are, what are you enjoying?
0: I, I'm enjoying the Australian guests being here. Um, we we're, we're seeing a lot of people who. Um, probably travel like this quite a bit but would be always going overseas to do it Um, and now that they're not they're they're actually coming and they're traveling in Australia they're traveling in Tasmania and um, doing things that they probably haven't done before so that's been pretty awesome I think I mean there's a lot of great places in the world and, and lovely places to go but seeing people actually travel and, and enjoy things close to home's been been pretty special and we can show off what we do here normally to an international market this time of year and we'd be probably 70 80% international guests um, but at the moment it's it's all Australian so I think that's pretty cool actually and, and that they'll you know they'll go back to Sydney and or or Melbourne or Adelaide or wherever they're from and talk to their friends and, and hopefully that actually boosts the Australian market even more into the future as a, as a bit more of a long-term thing because um, who knows when international travel is going to start again. So I think that's been pretty awesome and, and we're getting to show off what we do better than anyone else. It's uh, yeah, pretty cool, I think.
1: The circumstances of this year have given you some sort of um, revelation about the way that you operate. How are you going to look back at this period of time
0: Oh, I think I'll look back at it pretty fondly. I think it's been, it's been good for me in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, a bit of stress financially and, and all that, but uh, far outweighed by the actual good stuff that I, you know, got to spend with my family and um, got to heal my body and my mind a bit. So I, I think I'll look back on 2020 as more of a positive than the negative um obviously things can get worse again but i feel like we're we're in a particularly good spot in tassie where we have this natural border around us and um it it doesn't feel dangerous like i'm i'm not worried about getting sick at all because we can manage it so easily with this with this natural border so it's it's more a a cultural issue um and yeah i'm i'm pretty pretty positive about it i think A lot of good change will come out of of COVID for the industry Um, and it'll be stronger for it on the other side. We're all kind of working to our strengths a bit more and focusing a bit more and, and not just going through the motions. So I think it'd be a good thing down the track.
1: Well, Ian, I've had the pleasure of enjoying your hospitality on numerous occasions, and I hope it happens again because you're a bloody legend, mate. We've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds. Uh, Please keep in touch, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers, and producers in search of hope during this pandemic Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at deepintheweedspodcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.